Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Christy Taylor. Ordinarily, I would follow this with a line about how we are your curated selection of the week's science stories. But it's January. We've got a squeaky, fresh new calendar year ahead of us, and as many people do this time of year, we thought we'd reflect a bit on what's to come. I've got an all-star roster of New Scientist reporters with me today to tell you what they think 2024 holds, what exciting or sobering trends they expect to continue, and how they anticipate spending their weeks and months as journalists who cover technology, health, space, and the environment. From the potential for another record-setting year as the world continues to warm, to a continuation of last year's skyrocketing popularity in weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy. Meanwhile, what could this year's supercomputers hold, and what does cryptography look like in a quantum era? But first, we go to space, a reliable source of good science and dazzling views. Leia Crane is here. Hey, yeah. Hello. Leah, I know there are a lot of missions coming up in the next year, but let's start with what seems like is about to be the most crowded place in the solar system, the moon. How many moon missions exactly are planned for 2024? <laughs> well, we never know exactly because in spaceflight, things always get delayed and moved around. But right now, it's looking like about 13, give or take a few. A nice baker's dozen? <laughs> okay. Perfect. Why so many? Well, most of the missions are through NASA's commercial moon program, CLIPS, which was always planned to ramp up in 2024. And that program is where NASA funds commercial spacecraft to send science up to the moon. And all of it is in preparation for increased human exploration as part of the Artemis program. None of this year's voyages to the moon are human exploration, right? Do you have a favorite of all the inhuman missions, I guess? <laughs> yeah. One thing I'm really excited about is all the different kinds of rovers that are going up this year. Most of the moon launches are each carrying a couple of smaller bits and pieces to put on the surface of the moon, and those include some really cool rovers. There's one that's a team of three, so they can all autonomously navigate the moon like in formation by themselves, so they can take the same measurements at different spots. And there's one that's going to hop around instead of rolling <laughs> on wheels. And there's some really tiny ones. The list goes on. It's all really great. That's adorable if we can talk about machines that way. How how tiny are we talking, though? Like a couple inches across, real tiny. Wow. Okay, itty bitty. And the moon isn't the only place folks are heading in the new year. There are also some nifty solar system missions, too. Yeah, lots of missions to other moons. Uh, I'm particularly excited about Japan's MMX mission, which is going to bring back samples from Mars's moon, Phobos. 
Why Phobos and not Mars itself? Well, for one thing, it's easier to land on Phobos because it has no atmosphere. So it's just an easier mission. But also, Phobos and Mars's other moon, Deimos, have some really cool mysteries in their own right. It's been really controversial whether they're captured asteroids or formed where they are around Mars. So mm. there's a bunch of evidence on both sides of the debate, but actual samples from Phobos should clear it up once and for all. Amazing. When do we get those samples? 2029. So we're going to Earth's moon and Mars's moon. It's a year of moons. Absolutely. And that's not even all the moons. NASA is also finally launching its Europa Clipper mission, which has been in the works in one way or another since 1997. That one's going to visit Jupiter's moon, Europa, which may have been obvious from the name. <laughs> you know, Leah, I'm really excited about Europa. I mean, why should all the gas giants get the attention when they've got such fascinating rocks orbiting around them? Is this Clipper mission going to land on Europa, though? Not quite, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, the radiation in the area around Europa is really, really intense. So it's not even going to orbit, actually. It's going to fly by really close and then basically run away to where it's safe from the radiation and then do that again about 50 times. That's labor intensive at best. <laughs> what are we going to learn from all those flybys? A whole lot. Europa is particularly interesting, as you know, because it's one of those moons with an ocean underneath its icy shell. So a lot of what the Clipper team is looking for is information about that structure of that ocean and the composition. And we care about oceans because they are such rich, possible hosts of life. Exactly. Europa Clipper can't directly search for life, but it can teach us a whole lot more about Europa itself and its ocean and the surface and the area of space around it. And all of that will help us figure out whether it might be habitable. And then, of course, looking farther ahead, it'll help plan for a possible future mission to drill beneath the ice and actually look for life more directly. I can tell you have a busy year ahead, Leah, covering all those missions. Any last ones for the big to-do list in the sky, I guess? <laughs> actually, there's one more big one. You remember last year when NASA's DART mission punched an asteroid? Oh, yeah. That was intended to test our ability to defend against asteroid impacts, which extremely metal, to say the least. Absolutely. The asteroid we punched is called Dimorphos, and the European Space Agency's HERA mission is the follow-up to that DART mission. It's headed over there to basically investigate the crime scene and figure out exactly how the impact affected that asteroid. And knowing about that will help a lot if there's ever a dangerous asteroid heading towards Earth and we need to slam something into it to deflect <laughs> it. <laughs> Which sounds a little bit sci-fi, but it could actually be real. Someday we'll learn that Armageddon was actually a prophetic movie. I'm very excited for it that. It was a documentary. <laughs> and now we turn to the tech sector. What may come this year in the world of advanced gadgetry. Matthew Sparks is here. Hey, Matt. Hi, Christy. So first off, we've had some really interesting stories about impressive new supercomputers due to emerge this year. Matt, what can we expect and why is there such a flurry of activity? Yeah, there was a lot of big announcements last year about machines that are due this year. Um, these things, they tend to get planned years in advance. There's big budgets and uh, there's a steady pipeline of new computers planned as well as chips get more efficient and more powerful. And the scientific experiments that run on them get ever more demanding as well. The really big news uh, that came out is that Europe is going to get its first exascale machine. That's the term for a computer that can perform a billion, billion operations a second, which is quite a big number, quite a mind-bending number. And currently, there's only two known exascale machines in the world. So by the end of 2024, Europe will join that sort of pretty exclusive club. 
that sounds really exciting, Matt. But what exactly does an exascale machine let you do better or faster or stronger? It's basically just that you, you can do more faster. So there's going to be some scientific experiments that can be done quicker and easier. Um, there's going to be some that were just impractical to do before on smaller machines that, uh, you know, they'll be able to be run for the first time in Europe, at least. So everyone from physicists to chemists to mathematicians, they're going to be queuing up to get access or filling in, you know, long application and grant forms to get access. Um, the <laughs> European machine, that's likely to be built with thousands of, of custom ARM chips, as well as thousands of high-end graphics cards from NVIDIA. So it's going to be capable of a lot of number crunching, and it will be pretty good at training AI models as well. So given that we're seeing so much rapid progress in AI at the moment, it's going to be pretty interesting to see where those improvements go You know, now that we've got these, these vast computers available to us in Europe. All right, let's go from supercomputing then, Matt, to quantum computing. I know we have heard so much about the rapid progress of these quantum computers in 2023, and perhaps most importantly, this idea that they will be able to speed up a lot of computational tasks to the point where they could actually even break our ability to encrypt sensitive data just by being extremely good and fast at cracking codes. So what's happened in that area, and what should we be looking out for in 2024? Yeah, you're right. This idea that quantum computers will break encryption, it's been around for, for years, really, decades even, but it's its sort of coming to a head at the moment. For a long time, there was a skepticism that we'd even get quantum computers working properly, but it, there's been a lot of progress and it's increasingly looking like when, not if. But to do things like crack encryption, you need a machine of a certain power or a certain size, but also one that's got low enough rates of errors that you can actually use it to do tasks. So uh, in mm-hmm. 2023, we saw the size of uh, quantum computers increase pretty steadily. IBM had uh, a working machine with over a thousand quantum bits or qubits. And we've also seen research out of IBM and Harvard that had machines working with extremely low error rates compared to previous devices. So we're still a long way off a machine that can crack encryption, but it's looking more and more like one will be on the way at some point. I presume that will be a very disruptive day for the world, too, when the first quantum computer that can crack encryption comes online. We use those same algorithms to protect email, finances, our sensitive personal data, all sorts of things, right? I mean, society basically functions on encryption. Yeah, in theory, it's going to be a really, really messy moment. But uh, in reality, these machines, they're going to be quite scarce and still quite slow at first. So there might be a really well-funded spy agency that has one and it can crack, you know, the very most sensitive and important stuff. And that's going to have a big impact behind closed doors that we'll never hear about. But it's Mm. not like there's going to be a machine that will render all encryption everywhere useless overnight. So what's the solution then? And why is this just coming to the fore now in 2024? Well, part of it is that the the US agency that sets standards that tend to get adopted around the world, NIST, they've been working on a, a new set of encryption algorithms that are going to be resistant to quantum computers. They've picked the final ones, and next year we should see formal adoption of those as a standard. So we're likely to see a lot of activity, a lot of companies adopting those standards, adding them to their software, loudly promoting them to convince everyone that this is all sorted, that sort of thing. One more thing, you mentioned AI earlier, but let's go back to that. I I think I saw we've published 150 articles on the topic of AI over the course of last year. I can't imagine we'll publish significantly fewer this year. But the growing role of AI, it's not without controversy. There are ongoing concerns about racist and sexist bias, worries about factually incorrect outputs. 
But one other criticism that's leveled against AI companies is that their models are trained on copyright material, essentially hoovered up from the internet. So does this year hold anything interesting on that front? Yeah, definitely. At, at the moment, there's at least nine lawsuits going on with OpenAI, Meta, and Google parent company Alphabet. They're all being tried in legal battles. Essentially, to train one of these AI models, you need a vast amount of content. And the easiest way to get that is the cheapest way to get it is to grab it from online. So images in stock photography collections, text from magazine websites like even New Scientists, social media posts, all that stuff is there. It's freely available to, to access, but it's also copyrighted. But that's all being sort of consumed by these AI models. A lot of technology companies, they sort of argue that these powerful AI models, they're a force for good. So it's a decent trade-off. But one thing is certainly true you know, the current business model around AI, it doesn't work if you have to pay for that data. So we're going to be watching these court cases really closely over the coming year, because each one of them has got the potential to set a precedent that really undermines the current crop of image and text generating AI models. It's a new year, and that means we've got something new for you in the New Scientist podcast feed. We're re-airing a lovely series we ran a few years ago, all about escaping our real-life stressors into some lovely, exciting science facts. Appropriately, we called this the Escape Pod, and episode one is already in your feed. It's all about the theme of understanding. We dove into the self-awareness of dolphins and whales, tried to conceptualize the impossible abilities of gymnasts and ballerinas, and much more. Dolphins give each other some sorts of names, don't they? Yeah, they, they have signature whistles that are distinct to particular dolphins. So they might go... <laughs> and, uh, and, I don't um, know you spoke dolphin. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that was dolphin. And if you want more like that, good news. There's more like that. Next Tuesday, we will escape into alliances on Escape Pod, the symbiotic relationships between lichen and algae, how carbon can be the foundation of so many materials, and history's most prolific mathematician. Enjoy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Next up, we've got James Deneen on the Environment Beat. Hey, James. Howdy. So as we've heard from you a lot already in the last couple months, 2023 was a big year for climate stories. Not only was it the hottest year on record, it ended with the world agreeing at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai to transition away from fossil fuels. So what have we got in store for the climate in 2024? Well, let's start with heat. You thought 2023 was hot. 2024 is likely to be even hotter. This is largely due to the same factors that boosted temperatures last year. 
rising concentrations of greenhouse gases, and a shift to El Nino conditions in the Pacific Ocean. On greenhouse gases, our emissions rose to record levels in 2023, contributing around 1.3 degrees Celsius warming to the 1.4 degree rise above the pre-industrial average seen in 2023. There's a chance that 2024 may actually begin to see a decline in global greenhouse gas emissions, which would be a very good sign. But as long as we're emitting at all, the concentration of greenhouse gases will continue to rise and temperatures will keep going up. The other piece is El Nino. That added to 2023's heat, but it only developed in early June. And those warmer temperatures in the Pacific are only now developing to their maximum. Historically, it's actually the year after El Nino develops that sees the greatest heat. And that would be this year. All right. So how hot could it get? Are we definitely breaking another record this year? There aren't yet projections of global average temperatures throughout 2024, but researchers tell me there is a possibility they could rise above 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average for the first time. That would be a big story if it happens. You know, 1.5 degrees C is sort of the totemic number in the Paris Agreement. But one cautionary note there is that even if the annual average does rise above 1.5 degrees C in 2024, it would not constitute a breach of the Paris Agreement target. It's generally agreed that would require the 20-year average to rise above 1.5 C. We can also expect to see some of the patterns commonly seen during an El Nino, such as drought in Australia and South America and heavy rains in East Africa. Although one researcher I spoke with pointed out that this combination of a high concentration of greenhouse gases and a strong El Nino is unprecedented. So expect the unexpected. I do not love that idea of the unexpected. That sounds like it could be a little scary. But you recently returned from COP28, where countries were trying to negotiate what they were willing to do to cut emissions and to keep the 1.5 degree Celsius target in reach. Is that even possible anymore this year, much less ever? Well, it is still technically possible, but it would require extremely rapid cuts in emissions that are pretty difficult to imagine happening at this point. The key number under discussion at COP28 was at least a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030. But some research suggests even steeper cuts would be needed. With current policy, we're on track to cut emissions by only around 5%. So encouraging. <laughs> well, what other big climate stories, then, are you watching for this coming year? There were some positive records in 2023. 2023 was a record year for building renewable energy, and it will be interesting to see if that pace continues to speed up in 2024, especially in places like India and Africa. There are lots of eyes on China as well to see if emissions might peak there. And we'll be watching closely for other indications countries are responding to the COP28 call to transition away from fossil fuels. There will be a lot of new attention as well on tracking and controlling methane. One organization is actually going to launch a satellite dedicated to sensing methane leaks so they can be plugged. So mm. watch for that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the climate itself, there is a lot of concern about how the Amazon rainforest will respond to this drought and heat with El Nino as it approaches a possible tipping point in transition from rainforest to savanna. The other big one is Antarctica which has seen record low levels of sea ice throughout 2023. That has spurred some researchers to ask if the continent 
may have passed a threshold of ice loss from which it can't recover. And we can't start a new year without a health checkup. Medical reporter Claire Wilson is here. Hey, Claire. Hello, and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. And Claire, you're here to tell us why we need to brace for even more stories about the weight loss drugs that seemed to take over in 2023. Ozempic, Wegovy, also known as semaglutide. And I have to say, Claire, before you tell us more, it really does feel like the kind of thing that's already been talked to death, you know? <laughs> what, what is left to say? Well, fair enough. Um, we have been doing an awful lot of stories about these drugs. But um, yes, there is more to come. Um, for starters, <laughs> a more potent fat-busting injection is likely to get a lot more widely used this year. And we'll see further trial results for a smorgasbord of other medicines in the pipeline. So just to recap, right, semaglutide was first developed to treat diabetes. And it works by mimicking the action of a gut hormone called GLP-1, which is normally released after eating. So this makes us feel full, as you might imagine, uh, reduces your appetite and boosts release of insulin, which regulates blood sugar. Now, right at the end of 2023, another drug for weight loss was launched in the US. This one is called ZepBound or Terzepatide. And this is the weight loss version of the diabetes. It was first launched as a diabetes drug. For diabetes, it's called Manjaro. Are we, are we straight? Have you got all those names? Don't <laughs> I think worry. I got it all straight. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about the brand names too much. But basically, this most recent drug, it's the same drug class. It works by mimicking not only GLP-1, but also a second gut hormone, right? So while the, the two injections, ZepBound and Wegovy, they've not been compared in a head-to-head -head trial, separate studies comparing them individually with placebo, they do suggest that ZepBound could cause more weight loss than Wegovy. The first trial suggested 21% compared with the 15% for Wegovy. But last month, a further longer trial came out showing that if people keep taking ZepBound for three years, they have a weight loss of 25%. Uh, so if you just, you know, it's, it's getting higher when, when you keep taking it for longer, which we didn't see with Wegovy. And looking at the curves in the, the results coming out from the trials, it does suggest that it is going to kind of plateau out at about that level. But this 25% result, that's not been seen before with any weight loss or diabetes drug. That's enough to shift someone from being in the medical category of being obese to healthy weight category. So I mm -hmm. think this year people will be clamoring to get ZepBound even more than they already have been clamoring to get Ozempic and Wegovy. Yeah, and I, I remember, I mean, when you speak of the clamoring, there were a lot of stories about supplies of Ozempic running out last year, sometimes with dangerous consequences yes, for people. Yes. So demand for Ozempic and Wegovy soared so much last year, the manufacturer could not keep up with it. It even led to people buying kind of fake versions of the injections, counterfeit mm. medicines. Yeah, some, some of which, in the UK at least, they turned out to be made from insulin injection pens that had been relabeled as Ozempic. So mm -hmm. insulin causes your blood sugar to really fall. So some of these uh, people who bought the fake Ozempic pens, they actually fell into a diabetic coma and they could have died. Now, I believe they all did recover, but it, it shows how desperate people had been getting. So what about this kind of smorgasbord of other drugs that oh, yes. may come in the future? Yes. So these are medicines that are on the horizon 
probably won't reach the clinic this year. We could be talking a few years away, but they could be even more effective than ZepBound. That's because there are other hormones that naturally reduce appetite. And there are injections in the works that mimic various combinations of them. There's one that mimics three hormones in one, and that has been nicknamed Triple G. That's Um, intense sounding. Yes. Of course, it doesn't necessarily follow that the drug that targets the most hormones will cause the most weight loss. We'll only know which ones work best for which people when their clinical trial results come out. But one interesting thing that is coming out from the kind of early research is that it looks like as long as they do get approved and reach the clinic, eventually doctors will kind of tailor, you know, different medications or combinations of medicines for different patient groups. So trying to really target the different health conditions caused by obesity. So if you have obesity and heart disease, one drug combination would be most beneficial. While if you have obesity and diabetes or obesity and fatty liver disease, you'd be steered to different ones. Okay, Claire, there is one more thing coming this year that seems like it's up your alley. Reporter Alice Klein wrote about human trials for artificial uteruses that might be able to support premature babies outside their parents' bodies. What is that? that? This is mind-blowing, isn't it? So this is a system where newborn babies, very, very premature babies, uh, would be kept in a kind of fluid-filled bag. (laughs) So they're not even yet breathing. They'd still have fluid inside their lungs. But they they get their blood oxygenated through a machine that's kind of similar to a heart-lung machine that we use for people who are either having heart surgery and their heart needs to be stopped or, you know, if they've really gotten into terrible heart and lung failure. They sometimes put people with very severe COVID onto these machines temporarily. So to be clear, for these babies, this would only be temporary. Uh, You know, it's sometimes talked about as as if we might be able to replace pregnancy altogether. So it's (laughs) nothing like that. This would be a temporary thing. In animal testing, um, it's been done on baby lambs, premature lambs, for up to four weeks. So Mm -hmm. the idea is it would just be a kind of stop gap until they can be treated more conventionally in an incubator and I guess they'd be kind of pulled out of the bag in a, in a kind of birth situation yeah like kind of similar <laughs> well that still sounds in the realm of science fiction to me and it sounds like it could make a meaningful difference for a lot of premature babies who may struggle in sort of conventional incubator situations absolutely yeah you know we talked about human trials so so what what's coming Oh, yeah. So um, again, let's not get carried away. So we don't we can't say for sure that that will happen this year. So so far, all the research has been done in animals with um, baby lambs being kind of the main group that it's been tested on. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has signaled that it may soon approve the first test of this on a human baby this year. But it is such a huge step and the stakes are really high. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see. But it's a possible. Yeah. All right. And we'll end as we began, with space. But now we turn to a more homegrown space science, the art of looking up at the sky on a clear night and enjoying what you find. That's right, stargazing. Features editor Abby Beal is here with this year's highlights for people who like to look up. Hey, Abby. Hey. Step one. One of the most reliable things we can do for our viewing pleasure is put meteor showers on the calendar, right? And they're pretty easy to predict. Yeah, exactly. Meteor showers are great because they grace us every year. 
So on any given night of stargazing, you might see a couple of meteors um, within an hour. So these are flashes of light that are caused by pieces of dust hitting Earth's atmosphere. But meteor showers happen when Earth's orbit brings us in the trail of dust left behind by comets or asteroids. So this year we have the usual big hitters. We've got the Lyrids in April, the Perseids in August and the Geminids in December. But this year we also have the Eta Aquarids, which will peak on the 6th of May, and that will coincide with almost no moonlight, making them one to watch out for too. Yeah, that's really key, isn't it? Avoiding the moon for meteor showers. Yeah, exactly. Especially for the dimmer ones. So like the brighter the brighter meteor showers, like the Geminids and the Perseids, it doesn't matter so much, but for the ones that are a bit fainter, it's important to limit light pollution. So what are some other ways that the sky will dazzle us this year, more than usual at least? So there's always special dates every year where the planets um, line up with each other. So they can line up with each other or certain bright stars or the moon to look particularly special. I use software called Stellarium to see when these are happening. Um, And you can also use lots of free stargazing apps for your phone that will give you little alerts when the planets are doing cool things. So one of them that I like to use is called Sky Guide. Mm -hmm. There will be a lunar occultation of Venus this year on the 7th of April, which is visible in certain parts of North America. Um, And this means that Venus will essentially look as if it's passing behind the moon. And this whole process happens in around an hour. We had one in the UK a few months ago, and it was really cool to see. Um, And then on the 20th of April, there will be a five-planet alignment with Venus, Mercury, Neptune, Mars, and Saturn, all visible in a row just before sunrise. And then, of course, the big show this year, there's that solar eclipse coming up in April, though I know that's mostly North America, right? Yeah, I'm so excited about this one. So on the 8th of April, there's going to be a total solar eclipse visible from a 115-mile-wide strip across North America, stretching all the way from Mexico to Canada and going through 13 states. People elsewhere in North America will see a partial solar eclipse, but for those who are lucky to be in the path of totality, the moon will fully block the sun's light for over four minutes. It's going to make it so dark that some stars and planets will be visible Mm. in the daytime. And it's such an amazing thing to see. I saw my first total solar eclipse last year in Western Australia, but that one was just over a minute long, so Mm. it didn't quite get so dark as it can do. So I'm looking forward to seeing this one. I'm really excited. I'm also going to be in Texas for this eclipse, and I've never managed to see a total eclipse before, so I'm crossing my fingers that it will not be cloudy. Yeah, I think everybody's going to be doing the same thing. Um, yeah, it's really cool because whenever there are solar eclipses, there's also lunar eclipses, usually two weeks before or after. So um, there's going to be a lunar eclipse this year on the 17th of September, which is two weeks before another solar eclipse happening in October. And that is going to be partially visible from Europe, most of Africa and most of North and South America. Absolutely amazing. And if we miss any of these things, of course, the sky is still good 365 nights a year, right? Exactly. I'm always, um, these are obviously just a handful of a few dates of things to look for, but I'm always encouraging people to make time to go stargazing all year round. And this year is going to be a special one because we're heading into the peak of the sun's 11-year solar cycle, which means that there should be a lot of opportunities for people to see the northern lights or the southern lights, which is something I know is on a lot of people's bucket lists. I live in the north of England and I've seen two amazing displays already this winter, so I'm going to keep an eye out for those as well. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with our usual hot-off-the-press news updates. And you can find all the stories we talked about today, plus more predictions for the year, at newscientist.com slash 2024 preview. 
and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on. Plus, if you like the great stories we're bringing you, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to get our podcast in front of other people who also love science. And of course, we love hearing you get excited about science just as much as we love talking about it. I'm Christy Taylor, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.